I am Danika. And I am Myra. And this is the Black Women Healing Podcast. A space to discuss mental wellness. A space to dive into soul care and vulnerability. Here, we will support you on your journey as you focus on your healing. While also giving you the work along the way. Welcome to Black Women Healing Podcast. Hey, y'all. I am here to announce that our book, Let's Heal, a workbook designed for Black women with various modalities by your co-host, Danika and Myra, is now at a storefront. And so the storefront is Urbana Goods. It's a community store that brings an upgraded experience of connecting with the community uh, with small crafting gatherings and workshops and supporting other local businesses by housing and selling their merchandise, such as us. And they even sell some of your typical items from the local convenience store. Like y'all, I literally bought some body butter, hair products, and a cute purse all from this store, just to give you a little example. So when you have some time, check out Urbana Goods. It's located in Guardina, California. The actual address is 1756 West El Segundo, Guardina, California, 90249. You can put it in your GPS, whatever you need to do, but go ahead and make your way there and check us out. Hey y'all, we're back with another episode of Black Men Healing Podcast, and we have a guest that is returning today, so really excited about that. So with the new year, we're switching something up a little bit. Danica had an idea of us picking a quote and talking about like how we feel about it, just our thoughts around it. And so to get started, I hear this quote a lot, and so Esther, I'm kind of curious what you think about it because... I kind of struggle with understanding it. Like, I feel like I understand it, maybe not. So I'm just curious. So the quote is by Angela Davis and it says, I am no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept. And so the first part, I always kind of struggle with understanding. The second part, I understand, right? Wanting to change the things that you just don't want to continue to allow into your life. But the first part, I am no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I kind of struggle with understanding. What are your thoughts about this quote? So for me, that speaks specifically to um, structures. Mm. You know, racism is a global beast and it's a structure, right? It's a system. Yeah. And because it's so enduring, its love language is violence and brutality towards folk that look like us. It's such a daunting thing to confront. And so from standing as an individual person, that it looks like a thing that you cannot change. But the reality is that's exactly how Black people got to liberation and freedom. When folk decided to run, Uh they didn't know what liberation looked like. They were facing what was arguably the mountain of enslavement that had been historically sustained for years. And still they run. So to me, that sentence is about that, that you take all of your courage and your energy and your skill set into your hands. And it's not about the size of the mountain. It's about your commitment to a liberation and a freedom and a determination to have a peace for your black body, no matter what the world says about that very black body. That's what it means to me. Thank you for that. Now I feel like I actually understand it. And I know the last time we were talking, I was very thankful for you because you, you do it so well where you're able to 
take words and really break them down to where it's easy to digest and understand. So thank you for that. Now I feel like when I hear this quote, I can say I actually understand what they're saying because I, I used to always be like, I don't know what they're saying, but it sounds really nice. So thank you for that. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce Esther. Esther Amara is an international award-winning journalist, playwright, radio host, and writer. She is currently CEO and founder of the Amara Institute of Emotional Justice, a global institute implementing the emotional justice framework she created. The institute works on projects, training, and leadership, and thought leadership. Esther's book is the number one new release on Amazon for six weeks straight in two different categories. So this episode is a little bit different because we had the opportunity to read Esther's book. And while not giving you too much information, we do want to talk about it just a little bit because we think it's a good buy and that people should actually take some time and read it. So just to get started, our first question is just simple. What inspired you to become a journalist? Silence, actually. Um, I was a kid who was raised in a home where there was a lot of silence. Silence particularly demanded of the children while the adults could speak. So it made me an observer and made me a listener. Um, it made me think about what is being, what would we know if the silences were heard by those whose voices are not invited to that particular table? So that's how it began. It really was about a curiosity and I think a desire to have my voice heard, having been silent, felt like it was silence for a long time. Um, I'm a storyteller, definitely by ancestry, by spirit. Um, I'm analytical. Um, but it begins with wanting to break a silence. And then I think specifically as a, a Black woman in Britain at the time, before I moved to New York, um, the importance of a lens that is so often determined by people that do not look like me. And um, this notion that I think is totally false about objectivity in journalism. So there's this idea that there's, there's this neutrality, there's this impartiality. And I used to say that's, that's only true until it comes to issues of race. And then when it comes to issues of race, it's always about criminalizing, pathologizing, and dictating what is and what should be. And if I offer a perspective, you know, I worked in a um, predominantly white, very mainstream news space when I was in London. So if I offered a perspective that was connected to race that contradicted someone else's, there was always this, well, you're not really impartial about that. I don't know a single human being who's impartial about their lived experience in the world. I don't know a single black person that could be impartial about racism when it's literally killing people that look like you. And so, um, the desire to hear a perspective that reflected my journey, my history, my experience, my understanding of the world, and to challenge the idea that the single story of whiteness is the fact, the truth, the be all, the end all, alpha and omega. Like I called BS on that, and that's how, <laughs> that's how I got into journalism. And then for me, it was then print. I loved to write and to read. Um, and then it was radio. I really loved radio. I felt like radio was the 21st century drum. Uh, I think there's a musicality to um, a spoken voice through the airwaves and loved it. Just loved it. Yes, thank you for sharing that, Esther. Donika, can you, uh, are you good to go? Okay. Yes. So, I mean, reading the book, 
it was just getting like I felt like it started off like you know I was like oh my goodness it feels like I'm in school a little bit and then I heard like some of your personal experiences and I know for me like that's how I connect right and so this second question is kind of like as I start hearing some of your personal stories like it really just sparked this interest of how like your personal connection is to this question so you spoke about forgiveness and forget mentality of black folks in different countries um and this sparked my thoughts of our different experiences as black people in different geographical spaces um and I know then in like the later chapters you spoke about like revolutionary black grace um but do you think that unlearning whiteness will still look different right because I think revolution revolutionary black grace was about um like black folks right in connection to each other um and so I guess I don't know if that makes sense but that was a question that was sparking my brain so it is do you think that unlearning whiteness will look different from folks in different uh spaces geographically right black global black people yes and the reason that I think that is because um, the chapter Revolutionary Black Grace is about saying we are all Black, period, but our Blackness has been shaped by a set of experiences that means we come to whiteness differently. And because we do, we're not going to unlearn it necessarily in the same way. I'm talking to you from Accra in Ghana. This is a majority Black country. The president's black, the janitor's black, the bank manager, everybody, it's, it's, all the police, everybody's black. And so when you talk about the language of whiteness in Ghana, I'm talking about the legacy of colonialism and how it shows up in our economy. The fact that we are not, Ghana is not the chocolate capital of the world, Switzerland is or Belgium is. Why is that? The legacy of colonialism, unlearning whiteness for us means what does it mean to center your African identity? in every single stage of how the economy functions. Because when you're a healed person, you don't, um, somebody else doesn't get to um, profit when you have an entire set of people who are starving and who are struggling. That's not how that's supposed to work. But because it's a majority black country, Ghanaians don't necessarily have a relationship to their blackness that centers whiteness in the same way. If you're born and raised, I was born and raised in London, and then I lived in New York for almost 10 years. The relationship to blackness in New York, in the States, is absolutely shaped by enslavement and having such close proximity to white people in all these different areas of your world. And so there's a way that that then shapes your blackness. And what I'm saying is that for us as black people, we have to respect and honor each other's experience. But what we do is we don't do that we start policing each other's blackness. We say, well, this person's blackness is more or less than this, or what kind of blackness is that? And what I'm saying is what that does, it's how we police our blackness, that serves the language of whiteness. And the language of whiteness is always and has always been about black people being separated and segregated from each other. So what I'm saying is, yeah, the unlearning is not the um, same, um, but the ultimate goal is the same. And what is that? The goal is to say, as a collective, as a global Black people, we have a healing to do. And the healing is between us um, and the way trauma has shaped how we see each other and ourselves. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I have been around a lot of different um, 
different folks in general, different black folks in different spaces of, of and especially different countries in African specifics. And I feel like that is something that continues to come up. And I feel like the way that you explained it in the chapter where, or where you talk about revolutionary black grace, I just feel like it's not spoke about enough. And so I really, totally agree. really appreciate that of like, okay, how do we move forward with this? Or I know that this is real and acknowledging it. Cause I think a lot of times we don't, we'll just like sit around and like, okay, you know, but we're all black, right? But it's very different experiences within it. And so uh, I appreciate yeah. that so much. Um, thank you. Thank you. And I totally agree with you. I think that that's true. We don't speak about it enough. Or when we do speak about it, um, the way that different folks speak about it gets really offensive for other folks who are listening to it. Right. Like we like I write in the book, we have all this we have all this language and terms for the things that we don't like about each other. We have all this language that is designed to further wound and hurt one another. And I, that's why I say we, we're willing sometimes to show more grace to whiteness than we are to each other. And that is part of how the language of whiteness is spoken by black people all over the world. And I've, I've heard it in different places. I've heard it in America. I've heard it in the UK. I've heard it in, in, in Ghana. I've heard it in different African nations. All of us have that emotional work to do um, to unlearn the language of whiteness. And the reason I always say we, we, we like, I don't, I don't see it as I've discovered something and I'm good and I'm over here. I think we all have this work to do in community and it's generations long work because uh, white supremacy has done a number on all of us. And the number that it's done is to literally make us feel like, well, yeah, your blackness, it ain't really all that. Like, you don't really understand what it is to be black in America. And that's true. And so um, it doesn't make sense for somebody in Ghana to then lecture black people about in America about racism. That's mm. disrespectful, that's traumatizing, that's harmful, and it's totally out of line. And I've seen that happen and it's unacceptable. By the same token, it's not acceptable for African-American people to be in Ghana talking to Ghanaian people about what it is to be African mm. and how they are more or less African than someone else. It is disrespectful. It yeah. always triggers conflict, confusion, and controversy. It never doesn't. Because no, I cannot tell you how being Black in America feels because I wasn't born and raised Black in America. What, what would I look like? I look like an idiot trying to do that. And yet that's literally what we do with each other. And I think that that's how we speak the language of whiteness. When we engage with each other, we want to dictate the experience of someone else when you didn't live there. Whereas what I'm saying is, well, what would it mean for me to ask you rather than tell you? What would it mean to you for you to ask me rather than tell me? And then we both stand together, turn towards white supremacy and said, okay, they're the problem, mm -hmm. not us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and another um, chapter that sparked my mind was like the, the chapter on intimate revolution. So that's the chapter right. that focuses on black women. And I remember in our last podcast, epi podcast episode, this is the chapter you was like, yeah, this is the one that y'all need to really read, right? Um, and so for black women, because it's a lot of information, right? And I most definitely don't want to spoil the entire book. Uh, but for black women who don't know where to start with letting go of this emotional labor of the world, literally, because that's how you explain it in the chapter, like literally we're taking emotional labor from everywhere. Um, and so where would you suggest would be a good place to just start? 
the best place to start for, for Black women is actually to think about rest and replenishment. And by that, I mean, when you're doing your work, where do you find spaces of rest and how do you replenish? Because part of what that chapter is, is saying is for so many of us as of Black women, our relationship to labor, to emotional labor is all about productivity. The only value that we have is in what we produce. And I don't even mean regular productivity. I mean like sacrifice, broken down, can't get up, depleted, exhausted, all the things. And that is what has been defined as productive, but it's literally killing us. And so the place to start is to simply ask the question, so what does replenishment look like for me during my day? Instead of going, 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 what is the space in my day that's good, that I'm going to take to replenish? And I don't mean a lunch break because that's just humanity. I'm talking about replenishment. I mean, I mean, literally filling yourself back up emotionally and spiritually so that can, you, you can move forward with the day. And, and interestingly, you mentioned that chapter on um, um, February the 1st we're doing um, our emotional justice for black women online event, which is called goodbye to the emotional mammy. And it's doing this, breaking this down in more detail, how the emotional mammy came to be and how we as black women, why intimate revolution is our love language. It's so specifically about and for um, black women because the world will change when black women stop doing emotional labor for whiteness and for men. I mean, the world will change. It, it's absolutely unavoidable. And because we've done it for so long and it's so ingrained, we don't even recognize the power of it because it's so much a part of how we move through the world. And it's also, you know, I want to be really clear. Historically, if you didn't do it in America, enslavement on the continent, where there was colonialism, South Africa, where there was apartheid, like you could die. It's not like, let me do it, let me do it, let me see how I feel. No, emotional labor, you had to figure out how to navigate around white people. And if you didn't know how to do that, you could die. It was the physical labor, but the emotional labor is understanding how people were. And the absolute obsession that whiteness had with this delusion that enslaved people were content and happy and that BS. Um, and so that shows up in a contemporary time with the idea that white people still have this emotional connection to power when it comes to race that still centers whiteness. And they want, require and demand that black people and especially black women um, perform that emotional labor. And it is killing black women. It is killing us. It is exhausting us, it is depleting us, it is debilitating us. It is unjust, it is inhumane, it is unacceptable. And in 2023, we cannot do that ish anymore. Like it's just gotta stop. Um, but stopping is hard, right? Because like any, it's a relationship. That's why I talk about it as a love language. Any breakup can be messy. It takes a minute before you leave. You might keep going back. That's the reality of it. And so the, you start with, exploring what does replenishment mean to me and how do I begin to introduce that into my day in an ongoing way and then in emotional justice we say you connect the individual to the institutional because then it's about being within your organization how does the organization ensure that the um, black women within that organization have some kind of replenishment element 
within policy, within their DEI, but within policy, because you're a, it's about treating trauma like an equity issue. So you've got a resource replenishment, not just act like it's just going to happen magically. It's not um, about just individual action. It's about collective action and institutional change, for sure. Yes, thank you for sharing that. Donnie, were you going to say something? Okay. So we also wanted to ask how your friends and close, uh, your close friends and family have received your book. What has that been like? Uh, it's been amazing. You know, I, I was really blessed. I did a global book tour. Um, so, you know, I live, in, I live and work in these three different cities in New York, in London and in Accra. And so I went to each of those cities to launch the book. Um, and it was really beautiful, powerful, a lot of tears shared, people were really overwhelmed. Um, I, I was really blessed that my mama was able to be at the one in Ghana and the entire emotional justice, racial healing roadmap starts with her breaking her silence. So it was really important to me that she was there for the book launch. And it was beautiful. It's beautiful to hear my mother say she's really proud of me building something that is about the liberation of us as black people. It was beautiful to bring it home to the continent and to hear folks on the continent say, we love that there's a racial healing roadmap that thinks about us. It was beautiful to be in London. Um, and for folks who are Black British say, we love that you're able to talk about racism with a very specific focus on what it means to be Black and British. Um, and then to be in New York, having lived there for so long, I say I have global Black village. My village is badass to the bone. So they came through, they showed up, they showed out. And uh, it's wonderful. And then on a, on a broader level, it's been such a phenomenal reception. We, we, did, uh, we were number one new release on Amazon in our category, General Sociology Race Relations, for six straight weeks. And then folks just started reviewing it and putting it on Twitter and on Instagram and sharing how they were using the book. And that was exciting for me because that's the point of it, right? It's written to be used as a resource and a tool to help people in their work um, and to transform. And so to hear how people are using it has been really exciting. Along with all that, of course, is there's also backlash because um, as you've read it, you know that the book is also saying to white people, you have very specific work to do that is your work, that has always been your work, that is no one else's work. And this notion that we can get to some kind of equity by you not doing your share of um, the labor is uh, simply unjust and it's unacceptable. Um, and what it needs to be named, what your work is needs to be named as well, because white supremacy shapes white people just like it shapes black and brown and indigenous people. But what emotional justice is saying, um, which is different than other spaces, right, is that our work is not the same. And so often, there's been this approach that let's all kumbaya, get together, just be all together. And I call BS, that's not the truth. It's traumatizing for black folks to do some of this work with white folk. It's just traumatizing. And um, uh, white folk have that work to do and the book identifies what that, that is. So reception has been wonderful with dealing with backlash. Whole world is dealing with backlash right now when it comes to issues of race. And definitely this book is getting its fair share um, but you know, I stand on my ancestors' shoulders, so I'm, I'm, I feel protected. I got shields, and we got weapons too. Liberation yeah. is its own weapon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, when you wrote your book, did you imagine how well it would do? No, no, I, I didn't. 
you know, honestly, when you write a book, it's so hard. Yo, can I just can I just speak the truth for a second? It is yeah. so hard. It is so hard to write a book. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think people really are honest about some. Well, I think in within writing circles, yeah, folks talk about it. But it's really hard to write a book. I mean, this book has taken me over ten years. A lot of rejection, a lot of pushback, a lot of no, 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 no. This is never going to work. And so. The truth is, I'm, I was just grateful when I got a book deal, and then I was grateful when it actually entered the world. Mm. And it's, so it's, I'm catching up with, I never, I never then thought about how it would be received. I was so like, okay, finally we got the deal. Finally we have a publisher. Finally we have a publishing date. I remember when the book arrived and I just cried. It was like, this is a real book, holding it in my hands. It's a real book. Um, no, so I don't, I don't. I didn't even think about it. I definitely hoped for it and I definitely wished for it because real talk, I didn't write a book for it to sit in my house and to be read by me and my five friends. Do you know what I mean? Like you want it to be read in the world. So um, no idea, no idea. And it's really wonderful. And I don't um, um, downplay it. It's absolutely a joy and I love it. I love reading every other day. We'll read something that somebody's posted. Oh, I'm reading this book. They'll underline something. They'll post it on their Twitter, on their Instagram, or on their LinkedIn. And it's just wonderful. It really is. Yes, I love that. So as we wrap up, we always ask, do you have any takeaways for our listeners? And this could be literally anything that you just want for folks to know. Um, whatever you want to share. Um, buy the book. <laughs> That's yes. what I need to know. Yes. Um, but also... Rest and replenishment is the new black. For black women, rest and replenishment, that is our healing, it's our focus, and it's our work. Figuring out what that is for you is literally, you should do it as the job, the way you do your job job. Mm. For real, for real. Mm -hmm. And that is a transformative reality for us. It's uncomfortable and it's difficult, but it's absolutely what we have to dedicate. Um, ourselves too because it's part of our liberation requires that our emotional health requires that we are better and when black women are better really the world is better Mm -hmm. wow thank you so much for that Esther and you mentioned that you're having a workshop coming up can you give us some details on that when it is and where they can find the info yes so it's called um, goodbye to the emotional mammy Um, emotional justice for black women it's an online event. It's uh, February the 1st, 7 p.m. Eastern. Um, and it's a, free onlo- it's a free online event because we do specific events that are free to introduce people to specific elements that are just for them. And so for, um, we had done an event for white, about the work of white women last year. We wanted to open the year by doing a very special event that's specifically about black women's emotional justice love language, which is intimate revolution. And so goodbye to the emotional mammy, emotional justice for black women. That's what it's all about. Um, on our Instagram, emotional justice, you can find all the um, details. You've got to register. That's my only sister. And I beg you, please register. Um, and then we'll see you on the, on the first. We have, we have artists in our workshop. So we have an artist doing a dramatized reading. There's a presentation. It's super interactive. It's an exchange. It ain't, you know, it's not a lecture. Um, and yeah, go to Instagram, Emotional Justice, and you'll see the link right there where you can register and we'll see you. We'll see you then. 
Yes. And if you just simply Google it, the link pops up. I found it that fast. So Oh, you, you did? Yay. Oh, that's good. Yes. <laughs> so thank you so much, Esther. And we loved having you. Donnie, were you going to add something? No, same, same. I was excited for this episode. Um, and because I, I just remember you talking about this chapter. So reading it, it was just like, yes, this all makes sense. And so I'm super appreciative to have you again. Um, and so I also get to read the book. And so, yeah, everybody, please go buy this book. Uh, I think it's good for everybody, not just Black women, literally all people. We all need to read this book. So thank you so much, Esther. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I love the podcast, love the work that you all are doing. More conversations like these. I appreciate you inviting me back. Thank you.